What was it really like to be a physician treating the patients in the aftermath of Katrina? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. Dr. Diamond is an experienced family physician practicing in Silverdale, Washington, where he also serves as clinical assistant professor for the University of Washington School of Medicine. But he was also the director of the Mass Casualty Triage Unit at the New Orleans Convention Center in the aftermath of Katrina. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about the team that you worked with. Our team is the Christian Medical Response Team, and we are a division of Medical Teams International. It used to be called Northwest Medical Teams out of Portland, Oregon. We've done international disaster response in a lot of different countries throughout the world. This experience in New Orleans was uh, one of the most amazing that I've ever lived through. So how does it compare with the work you've done internationally? I would say the most difficult situation that we responded to prior to Katrina was Hurricane Mitch, which was a Category 5 hurricane that decimated Honduras. And it carved its way right through the center of that country. We flew into Tegucigalpa, the capital, where the main river that goes through there used to be 60 feet wide, and it expanded to 600 feet wide and 60 feet deeper, completely decimated that area. There were entire towns that were covered in mud all the way up to the tops of the roofs. But New Orleans seemed to me to be a much more intense experience. So share with us how you got things set up in New Orleans. Our team, when we go into these disaster areas, we can go anywhere from just a few people all the way up to about 25 to go in and set up a triage unit. In this case, it took us five days to get into New Orleans because of, believe it or not, because of licensure issues. We're all licensed to practice in Washington State. We couldn't practice in Louisiana, or we would have been there within 24 hours. Medical Teams International is known for its ability to respond anywhere in the world within 24 to 48 hours, and that's boots on the ground working within 24 to 48 hours. So once we got the okay from a licensure perspective, the levy broke on Tuesday. That Saturday, we flew into Baton Rouge and went to Lafayette to go work in a shelter. We're not a shelter team. We're a mass casualty triage team, but about eight hours after they sent us to the to the shelter, I received a phone call from the vice president of Medical Teams International, and he was down in New Orleans and said, hey, can you split your team? We really need help down here at the convention center. They're overwhelmed and and need help. I said, absolutely. So we split our team, and four of us went down to New Orleans and set up shop in the middle of the night that night in a parking lot across the street from the convention center. So what does a mass casualty triage unit look like? When we got there that night, it was this misty, blue, dank, I don't know, post-apocalyptic war zone that we were in. And we were asked to set up this triage unit across the street from the convention center. So it's a massive parking lot. And we just set up in one corner of it. That first night, what it looked like was an SUV that we unloaded our supplies from. We rounded up a couple of cots from the military, a few clipboards sitting out. We slept, half of us, that first night right on the concrete in the parking lot on our little thermo-rest pads. It was amazing. One of the things that I do want to say for sure is that the support that we received from the military, from the 72nd National Guard in Nevada and the 82nd Airborne out of Fort Bragg was unbelievable. Never one time did I hear a single person from either of those groups complain about anything. They always had the attitude of, what can we do to help, sir? 
and they were amazing. So did you have enough help? Well, you know, we had four people on our team. We eventually brought in a fifth physician of our group uh, later in that week, but then we added in some doctors and nurses from Nashville, and they were fabulous people. It was, we just sort of brought them in and said, okay, here's our system, and this is how we set up our triage area, and once we get it up and going, we divide into different zones. So we have a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone based on how sick the patients are. They fit right into our system and worked very well with us. What sort of patients did you see? We got there set up on about day five after the levee broke, so we didn't see a lot of the real acute injuries. What we saw were the elderly, very sick patients, very poor, and patients who had not taken very good care of themselves, the drug abusers and the alcoholics. The saddest ones were uh, like the dialysis patients that came in that hadn't been on dialysis for a week. Or, you know, one guy that came in, he said, you know, doctor, I didn't, I didn't have my pills. They got wet. So I took my pills. I put them all out on my bed and I dried them all out. And, and, I, and I've been taking them pills all week. I'm <laughs> thinking, oh my goodness, man, those pills found water that you wouldn't even want to water your lawn with. It was bad, but it was a sad, sad time to see these patients who a lot of these folks were so poor that they couldn't afford to evacuate, and then they lost the very little things that they had to begin with. How many patients did you end up seeing? Overall, overall I think we saw about 675 patients in that first week. The majority were in the first few days. The military had evacuated, now, now catch this, they evacuated 15,000 people in nine hours by helicopter within 24 hours before we got there. And then when we got there, there were thousands and thousands of people still in the city that were evacuating. We were the only evacuation point for the whole area. So all the people that came through went through security and they had that was provided by the military. They got wanded down and searched. And then they were split based on if they had any medical concerns or not. The ones that didn't have any medical concerns were sent off into one area where they were gathered and then evacuated out by helicopter. And then the people that had medical concerns came through, met with our staff, and they were triaged to either the green zone, the yellow zone, or the red zone. The red zone were the the sickest. So, Dan, this may seem like an obvious question, but, but why were these people wanted and patted down? Well, it was amazing to me that there were people there that felt compelled to try to harm the people that were trying to save them. And I can't figure that one out for the life of me. For example, one of the gentlemen that I met that I met when I was down there, Sergeant Bailey, is one of the New Orleans police officers. And by the way, those guys got some bad press, but the guys that stayed did an outstanding job. You think about losing your home, having your family displaced, and still working 18-hour days trying to protect and serve. Sergeant Bailey was out uh, in a boat rescuing people, and at one point they came around a corner, and there were, they had 17 people in this little aluminum boat, which was not designed for 17 people, let me tell you. And, and there was a woman there sitting on top of an electrical control box, you know, like a traffic control box, and she was in about chest-deep water on sitting on top of this box. She had her two babies on her shoulders, and she said, just take my babies. Just take my babies. I, you know, I can't imagine being in that situation, but the people on the boat said, no, we're not going to just take your babies. We'll take you too. 
So they're passing the babies over into the boat, and they're telling her, you know, you got to be careful when you get in the boat. Don't tip it. And she's gently trying to get into this boat with all these people. And there's some guys up on a building across the street that start yelling down, saying, hey, forget that lady. She's just trash. Come and get us. We've got food. We've got money. We've got water. We'll give you whatever you want. And they yelled back, you know, it's women and children. And they yelled back, we'll give you food and money. They said, no, we're going to get the women and children first. We'll come back and get you. The people up on the roof started shooting at the people on the boat. Shooting? Shooting at them. I mean, the people that were doing the rescue work were getting shot at frequently in this aftermath of Katrina. It, it was amazing. So that's why we had to have everybody padded down. And it, you'd be amazed the amount of weapons that they took away from people. We had one guy that showed up with a whole duffel bag full of swords thinking he was going to get on a military helicopter to be evacuated. I don't think so. We saw these, you know, incredibly horrific pictures on TV about the victims of Katrina. Were there any positive things that happened? There were amazing positive things that happened. That's the whole flip side of the story. Maybe it's that it doesn't sell copy to be on the news. I saw people like Sergeant Bailey that that really were willing to lay down their lives to rescue other people. But I also saw people like, I was working alongside of this woman the very first day when we were setting up, and she had a New Orleans Emergency Medical Services shirt on. It said paramedic across the back, and we're working along together, and I thought, man, she's the smartest paramedic I've ever met. So I asked one of the other local people, is she really a paramedic? They said, no, man, she's not a paramedic. She's the director of emergency medical services for the entire city of New Orleans. (laughs) I'm thinking, oh, great. I hope I didn't offend her. And I went up and I said, you know, I am so sorry. I had no clue that you were the director of EMS. Um, Our team will stand down. You know, you're welcome to have all of our supplies or anything that we can do to support you, but I don't want you to think that we're coming into your area and trying to take over. And she looked me in the eye and she said, you have no clue. We have begged God that he would send you. We've been working 18 or 20-hour days trying to do the best we could with the little bit that we have. We're so glad that you're here. You're an answer to our prayer. Don't you dare leave. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, can I ask you what's with the shirt? It says paramedic on the back. Are you trying to throw off the out-of-town boys? I will never forget this in my whole life. She looked me right in the eyes, and she said, it's the only shirt I own. Mm-hmm. You see, I just bought a new house, and I hadn't moved into my new house yet, and I lost both homes and everything, and my kids are in Houston. I thought, man, if I lost everything, would I go to work and help take care of people? You know, she was just an example of people overcoming their adversity with an intense commitment to make a difference in the lives of other people. Another guy that I saw, he was about 75 years old, and his name was Augie. And late one night, we were in the triage area, and all he had was a shopping cart with a couple of garbage bags, and that was all of his belongings. And he came up to me and he said, Doctor, I was wondering if I might be able to have that piece of cardboard over there against the fence. And I hadn't noticed it, but it's like the size of a mattress. And I said, oh, yeah, man, what do you want that for, Augie? He said, well, I only had six blankets, and I've been covering up all the elderly people, and there's a seventh man. I didn't have anything to cover him up with, and I was wondering if I might be able to cover him up with that. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you can have the cardboard. You can have my wallet. You can have my clothes. You can have anything you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just that was just an example of the type of love that I saw and the type of commitment. It seems like there's, no matter what happens, some people that will rise above a disaster, not focus on themselves and see themselves as victims, but they'll see the needs of other people and go out and try to make a difference. 
So how did this impact your life personally? Boy, it really made me take a, a long, hard look. You start asking yourself, wow, if I was like Augie and I lost everything, would I think about covering up little old people with blankets? That's one question, and that's a pretty interesting question when you ponder that one. But a much more challenging question is, in the midst of my abundance right now, what am I doing to help people? So that's one that I've really been struggling with. I've been doing some keynote presentations on um, inspiring and equipping people to make a difference in based on the lessons learned in Katrina. Because the things that we saw in Katrina were people that, despite their lack of resources, made a tremendous difference. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Dan Diamond. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.